Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Hello and welcome everyone to the Profiles and Strategy podcast, uh, Strategy and Policy Department, uh, talking about all things, all things strategy. With us today, this week for episode four, the Russo-Japanese War, is uh, Dr. David Stone, who is the William E. Odom Professor of Russia Studies and an all things Russia subject matter expert. Welcome, Dave. Um, next, we have Dr. Kevin McCraney who is the Philip A. Crowell Professor of Comparative Strategy, enthusiast on all things naval warfare. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. <laughs> and last but certainly not least, we have Dr. Jim Holmes, who is the J.C. Wiley Chair of Maritime Strategy for the Naval War College and fresh off of sabbatical, so chomping at the bit to, uh, to start talking about all things uh, naval theory. Welcome, Jim. All right, good deal. Um, so this week, Russo-Japanese War, and thought we'd start with a, with a kind of a, you know, uh, get into it question by saying, why, why is this, it's a non-U.S. war, why do we study this war? Why is this war important for uh, studying this uh, strategy in war at the Naval War College? Dave, we'll, we'll start with you. Sure. So I think it has intrinsic interest for me as someone who does Russia, um, but I think for a more general audience and, and certainly for the students that we get here at the Naval War College, what the case does and looking at the Russo-Japanese War is really dig in, into some interesting questions about um, opportunity and risk. Um, Japan runs an enormous risk in starting a war with Russia, a, a power of continental scale, um, and then the Russians are faced with questions of risk. What do they do with the fleet that they've got at Port Arthur? Do they run the risk of losing it? Um, anytime there's a big naval battle, things can go very badly very quickly. And that's a lot of men, it's a lot of lives, it's a lot of capital that can be lost very quickly. And so those questions of risk and reward and risk and opportunity, I think, are really fascinating. And the Russo-Japanese War gives us a chance to study them kind of in microcosm in a way that I think has insights for bigger questions. Hmm. Good deal. Thank you. Kevin, we'll go to you for that one. Thank you. Um, I agree with what Dave said, but I'd like to add several other things that really come along with this one. This war is confined to a relatively small geographic area, which makes the war very manageable to study. It involves two players. It has other states that are on the peripheries, but the main players don't have allies that are fighting with them in this theater and so forth. So it's it's, it's a smaller conflict, it's manageable, and particularly, it's a limited regional war. It's almost the archetype of the limited regional war. It's got everything in it. It's got one side that seemingly does everything wrong, has one side that seemingly does everything right. When you peel back the layers, it's not exactly true, but on the surface, those type of things start to play out. 
and has a major naval element and ground element, which allows for really a joint understanding of the war. And it also has a very, very interesting negotiated peace settlement that comes out, which is really the hallmark of limited wars. So to me, this is, this is really, if a student is jumping into limited war for the first time, it would be hard to find a better example as a jumping off point to see about limited war. Thank you for the question. Jim, we'll go to you. What's your sense on this one? Well, I think I, I think it's because, or certainly for me personally, it's simply because the contemporary relevance is really striking. It's the, uh, I mean, if I think about what the Japan is doing, it's way, it's essentially waging an, an anti-access area denial war against a stronger opponent that happens to whose main base of power happens to be uh, lo located far from the far, far from the region. That ought to sound kind of uh, sound kind of familiar as we look at the Western Pacific today. Uh, the one of the there's, there's actually a, there's actually a line I've been pushing for about a decade that that's, that that comes out of this. Mahan in his commentary on the Russo-Japanese War, he he is he castigates the Russia the Russian Navy for being what he calls a fortress fleet, a fleet that is supposedly uh, suppo supposedly an offshore defender of the, of the fort, but in reality shel shelters un under the guns of the fort and and tr tries to hold off a superior adversary. Mahan was Mahan was talking about this. At a time when when the range of gunnery, even shore gunnery, which would be the longest range that there, that, that there was, was well under 10, uh, 10 nautical miles. If you if you sketch that if you sketch that on the chart of East Asia, you're talking about confining your, your navy to a very small sea area. Mahan, that, that that's just loathsome for Mahan. It, it breeds all manner of uh, bad traits in Russian commanders and so forth. But what if you what if you took advanced technology uh, in weaponry, sensors, fire control, and all that kind of stuff? And you and you improved the, the guns, coastal artillery, so that you could strike scores or hundreds or even thousands of miles offshore. At that point, you've got a lot of sea area that, that your fleet can operate under as uh, uh, be a beneficiary of, of, of shore fire support. At that point, at that point, I think uh, Mahan's uh, critique loses its uh, loses its value. Good, good critique for the time. Not so good today. And I think that and I think that helps explain how China has fashioned its fleet. It has it has that uh, long range precision coastal artillery. The fleet doesn't necessarily have to be as strong or as the United States Navy and its allies in order to succeed, simply because it does, it can't combine combat power from sea and shore at the place and time of battle. And that, that, to me, that to me, that's something that really <clears throat> speaks to me out of the Russia-Japanese war. That's uh, a, it's a great point about the uh, anti-access area denial and the contemporary relevance. We'll, we'll definitely dig into that in a little bit. Um, so the, the Russians seem like, you know, they, they, they get this area after um, uh, in the years after the Sino-Japanese War, and is it is part of it that they just don't um, spend enough resources to fortify Port Arthur and and uh, and do what they need to do here, Dave? What's your what's your sense of that? So I, I think there's a number of things going on. Certainly, um, it, it looks as though that Russia lacks a sense of urgency when it comes to the defense of the Far East, and some of that has to do with racial attitudes towards the Japanese. Um, but there's also objective constraints. The nature of Russia then and the nature of Russia now is that it is big. And so it has long frontiers. Um, none of those frontiers are particularly secure. And so Russia has lots of places that it needs to commit resources. Um, so just in naval terms, obviously Russia has long continental frontiers and those continental frontiers have to be defended. And then on top of that, it has to split its fleet during the Russo-Japanese War into three geographical areas. So the, the Black Sea, the Baltic Sea and the Pacific. Um, and so the restraint, the, the resource demands on Russia to have a credible defense in all of those sectors are enormous. 
Um, and so again, while I think the Russians could have had a greater sense of urgency with regard to what was going on in the Far East, um, I absolutely understand why they did not have the resources to spare to shore up those defenses. Um, the Russians end up fighting this war by taking resources from other places and moving them to the Far East. And I'm not sure there's any real way for them to avoid that. Mm. Uh, uh, as you uh, have talked about before, there's a contemporary ring to that about taking resources from other places and, uh, and using them uh, as the Russians are doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, so moving to the other side of the, of the, of the map here, the Japanese certainly do seem to take some things seriously if we were to if we were to turn the map around and, and talk about it from a, um, a Japanese point of view in terms of this naval problem. Um, you know, Kevin, last week you talked about uh, British naval strategy in your lecture and how they had very stark choices and they could only they only had so many ships and they could only do so many things, whether it was blockade or uh, or, you know, uh, conduct naval war. Um, are the Japanese facing similar problems here with limited resources? Um, both sides are facing issues with limited resources, and that's, uh, that, goes, uh, that goes without saying. It's the Russians, as Dave has been talking about, how they have to divide their fleet between numerous locations. The Japanese have a much easier strategic position because they are focused in one region, but they've got major limitations to their maritime power. They can't build a ship larger than a destroyer. So they cannot replace any of the ships, large ships that they lose in the war by themselves. They're dependent on other states to be able to do this. This causes major issues with risk aversion and how do you risk your fleet, which comes back to something Dave was talking about in this first, first question here. Um, the, other, the other issue for the Japanese is uh, you understand that the Russians have a much larger fleet when you put all of its composite elements together. How do you defeat the much larger opponent while in the process remaining very, very risk adverse? It's, it's a tough question that the Japanese have to grapple with, and it's something that they will have to grapple with at least through Tsushima in this war. I think I want to pass this over here to Jim, who I think has yeah, some yeah, on his dad. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. In fact, I think we have this, uh, the Japanese played with being able to regenerate combat power is something that ought to speak to us today when we're always worried about our own uh, industrial base. Can, can we actually repair? Yeah, you have senior Navy leaders today saying, but hey, you know, we can't even keep up with regular maintenance. How are we going to de deal with wartime repairs? So I think that, uh, so I think when we think about a risk today in the United States Navy and with our allies, I think that, I think this is a pretty poignant example. Yes, we have the industry, but it's up but the capacity doesn't does seem to be lacking i think one way to i think one way to look at the and by the way corbett uh, i didn't cover it in my lecture but corbett uh, corbett pays a fair amount of attention to the, the strategic position at port arthur and he's no fan of it at all he's he's very vehement he, he's not a fan of vladivostok he's not a fan of port arthur he said he says he says russia really needed a port in southern Korea, whether it's Pusan or, or, or some somewhere somewhere in that in that neck of the woods. There's a number of good bays right there on the Tsushima Strait. So it's probably, it's possible that the Russian leadership was not a huge fan of uh, Port Arthur as a strategic position. And maybe that uh, tra translated into a, like Dave said, a certain lack of urgency, kind of a lackadaisical attitude. But I think I think in, in a strategic theoretical sense, it's a, it just to it's just to bring together what you all were talking about with uh, primary and secondary commitments. If you're Russia, 
my God, look, look, I mean, just just look at all the potential commitments around the around the around the periphery of Russia. Apply that calcul that Klausovitzian calculus to think through these things. Whereas whereas you only undertake a secondary commitment, and if if it is exceptionally rewarding, it promises great reward. If you if you have have decisive superiority of resources in the places that you care about most, the primary theater, and if and therefore if you can do it at a, at, a, at an acceptable degree of risk, kind of kind of hard to see the Far East of uh, figuring high in uh, Russia's calculus, given all the number of commitments it has as a big power ourselves, a, a global power. I think I think we're, we're in uh, in the same plight as well. It's really it's really hard to say this commitment matters more than the others, especially especially in Washington, when uh, when every commitment garners a consensus or, or a constituency rather who thinks that their commitment is the is the mo is the most important thing and is always going to clamor for for policy attention and resources to go to that commitment. Having a, being a big power with lots of commitments is is a tough thing, and I think that's one thing that uh, comes out of this case quite clearly. Mm. Yeah, it <clears throat> brings up a number of interesting points. So the, you know, we talk about value of the object and we say that um, that then influences the, the means duration, it seems like, and the risk calculus, value of the object for the Japanese exceedingly high and therefore they do take a greater risk with their, with their fleet. Whereas the Russian value of the object for the Far East, very low, less risk, at least initially. Is that Kevin? Do you think that's a uh, accurate uh, description, a way to look at this? Actually, I, I buy what you say about the Japanese. They are willing to accept greater risk, but oddly enough, because of the way the Russians assess their position, the way they deploy forces at the beginning of the war, actually, I'm of the opinion that the Russians are actually accepting a, even a higher level of risk than the Japanese, given the way their forces are are spread out, particularly in the naval realm. Uh, they think they are accepting less risk, but by the way they are split between Vladivostok, Port Arthur, the Baltic, and frankly, the Black Sea, which is a non-factor in the war because they can't get the warships out of the straits in, in this point, though the Russians have basically squandered their numerical advantage in the way they've deployed them, and in fact, put those ships at Port Arthur in greater risk. In fact, I'm of the opinion that Russia would have done better never to have sent a warship to the Far East at all, either before or during the war. I think if Russia had done that, they would actually have sent a much greater chance of winning the war by keeping it entirely on land, potentially bleeding the Japanese on land where the Russians have tremendous numerical superiority and tremendous depth where they can retreat to. Uh, just because you have ships, they're burning a hole in your pocket, doesn't necessarily mean you should use them in all the situations, but that's just my big takeaway here. I'm sure Dave is going to have a different opinion. <laughs> Where do you think, Dave? Where do you spend your rubles? Well, so I mean, it's interesting. There's, this is not the Russian Empire, but the Soviet Union faced the identical strategic problem. You know, uh, Siberia is a long way away. The Far East is a long way away. And so in the 1920s and 1930s, when the Soviets were really concerned about a war with Japan, they, they took this possibility very seriously. But their answer was never capital ships in the Far East. They never thought that was a good idea in the 20s and 30s. Uh, what they did was they wanted coastal defense submarines and torpedo boats, what they called a mosquito fleet. Um, and the primary defense would be on land. Uh, and so Kevin's logic is actually what later regimes in Moscow pursued. Um, and again, I think it's, it's, a, it's an accurate calculation of risk and reward in terms of how you defend the Far East and what you put out there. Jim, we'll go to you for. 
Yeah, I was just say, just uh, to uh, TR Theodore, Theodore Roosevelt uh, related points. Uh, one, one, when you're reading when you're reading Mahan's commentary on on Russia's handling of, of uh, NATO strategy in the Russo-Japanese War, keep in mind he's actually commenting on what the United States should do. The the U the U.S. at this point is built is, is building a great regional navy. In fact, it has built a great, great regional navy, and there's a real there's a there's a fair amount of political pressure to to break that into to break the, the fleet into Atlantic and Pacific fleets at a time in which each one of those detachments might be weaker than what it would face in that particular in that particular ocean. So so so, so there's a lot of boxed about whether you should concentrate the fleet in the in the ocean of greater risk. Try to try to swing it. I tried to swing it around to the other coast uh, in times of danger or whatever. So that's a, so, so, so that's what Mahan is like. In fact, I, we we were talking before we started the podcast today. The very last act that uh, President Roosevelt uh, did on uh, leaving the presidency in, in 1909 was he handed his successor William Howard Taft a note that says, "Dear Will, do not divide the fleet into the Atlantic into Atlantic and Pacific fleets because you're you're taking undue risk in, in both in both places." Much better to let uh, one coast take its chances so should something un unexpected happen and move the fleet and try to counteract that than, than, than to just subject ourselves to uh, defeat in detail. Also, also just the, this idea of a, of, a, of a mosquito fleet is something that TR commented on in his 1907 message to Congress, the foreigner of, of today's uh, State of the Union addresses. He, he, ba he basically laid out to Congress the relationship between the battle fleet and the mosquito fleet, the or, or if you want to call it the area denial and access denial fleet, basically said the coast should defend itself. You should, you should, you should have destroyers, torpedo boats, submarines, coastal artillery and whatnot. Your, your big har harbors ought to, ought to defend themselves. If you can do that, if you can hold off a stronger uh, uh, enemy fleet that's, uh, that's off your coast, Guess what happens? And he calls it a footloose fleet. The battle fleet, the battle fleet can then be footloose without taking too much risk to your trade, to your to, to your shorelines and everything else. So, kind of interesting to see, to see a sitting president uh, weigh in on operational matters. But uh, but that was how he saw things. And I think that's, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of goodness in that way of thinking about it. As we look at China, look at Russia, look at look at other powers around the world today. Mm, interesting point. So the uh, you know, and we, this week we're we're looking at. We're looking at Corbett and comparing, contrasting with him with Mahan. They both have opinions about this war. But Dave, bring it back to you real quick. You kind of seem to rail against the uh, the Mahanian concentration idea in your lecture. Any any thoughts on that uh, concept? Sure. So again, just to, to recap, Mahan argues that the all the Russians' mm. problems would have been solved if they kept all their ships together, mm. concentrate. And he says it's immaterial whether that concentrated fleet is sitting in the Far East or if it's sitting in the Baltic. Um, and I, I certainly understand that Mahan is, is uh, there, as Jim has said, Mahan's really talking to an American audience. And what he wants to tell the Americans is keep the American fleet together. And that makes a little more sense if you've only got two oceans to defend and if you have a Panama Canal that you can use to transit relatively quickly between those two oceans. Uh, Russia doesn't work that way. Um, it has three oceans to defend, or three seas to defend, the Pacific, the Baltic, and the Black. Today, it has the, the, the Arctic as well. Um, and it's not easy to get from any one of those to any one of the others. And so for that reason, it's a little difficult to be cavalier about how the Russians might just ship ships to a place of danger. The other thing is that concentrating all your ships in one sea leaves Russia open to the possibility of a fait accompli, a bolt from the blue that changes the situation on the ground fundamentally. So let's say, just, just to give a, a quick concrete example, let's say Russia puts all its ships 
um, in the Black Sea or in the Baltic Sea away from the Pacific. That would at least open up the possibility for a Japanese descent that takes Vladivostok or takes Port Arthur. And then it's really hard to imagine how the Russians get it back. Like, where do they base their ships for a naval campaign to try to get those things back? So I, I have real concerns about the general applicability of Mahan's advice to concentrate. There can be times and places where it makes perfect sense, but I think it's always about the concrete application to particular circumstances. Yeah, and Jim, I want to go to you on this one, but uh, and and you know, correct me here if I'm wrong, uh, but isn't it also a matter of port capacity in terms of where you can actually dock physically dock the fleet? Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. You have to take that sort of that sort of thing. I mean, the capacity of Vladivostok back in those days was limited to host to host the battle fleet, which is one reason Russia was trying to diversify its uh, portfolio on that so so yeah you can never neglect the industrial you know the, the, sort of the the material and also the environmental uh, dimensions of strategy as well sometimes it, sometimes you can have a great idea and you just can't get there from here just because you don't have the wherewithal the physical wherewithal to do it so yeah i, I agree i agree agree with dave actually i think that's uh, i mean and again i would just fall back on the secondary theaters calculus do you really expose your primary one of your primary theaters in the baltic sea to a bolt from the blue, you know, and for the for the sake of doing something that doesn't matter all that much to you in the Far East, yeah, so so I think so I think that that's uh, so I think that's probably the calculus for Russia. It's it's interesting to note the uh, Dave mentioned the canal, the Panama Canal. That's a the the U.S. leadership, Mahan, Mahan, Roosevelt, and, and other uh, real sort of realist scholars and, and practitioners back in those days. They're still thinking about they're still thinking about the the uh, uh, the Spanish American War in which. The battleship Oregon, which was based in the Pacific, had to circumnavigate South America to get into the fighting in the Caribbean Sea. This was this was really a visceral event for these guys, and it just demonstrated how difficult mobility between our east and west coasts was. But of course, but of course, in 1914, uh, the Panama Canal ultimately comes into service and and and, it, and it alleviates that pro that pro problem to a great event, makes that mobility through the Caribbean uh, much easier. Just to, just to foreshadow World War II in the Pacific, uh, when you look at the United States heading into World War II, in 1940, uh, Congress passes after the fall of France. Everybody's so scared that they passed what they call what they call the Two Ocean Act of Navy in 1940, which more or less doubles the size of the United States Navy and lets us have a self-contained fleet in each in each ocean. At that point, if you're willing to dump that many resources in, in, into into the Navy, you can ease a lot of your problems as far as where to swing the fleet in times uh, in times of trouble. But again, that's a very resource-intensive uh, endeavor, and it does it, it does depend on uh, artificially modifying geography as well, so that so that you can you can cut thousands of miles off voyages between our coasts. So a couple of big a couple of big game changers took place after the, this war for the United States. Mm. It goes it goes back to that uh, Mahanian uh, element of seafaring character of the people and the government, right? Willing to dump the resources. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the key determinants of uh, the, the character of the people and the character of government. Sure. And of course, Russia being a uh, fundamentally a continental power first can't devote the amount of resources to building all these fleets and all these places because it first has to maintain a standing army to defend its borders. But um, but I, I Kevin, I do want to want to go to you because uh, you've uh, you've done some some studying of Mahan and Corbett here. And uh, so uh, your sense about what they say about this war and how it plays out. Both are extremely interested in this war. Uh, they've both been writing Mahan's for 15 years about sea power and uh, naval strategy. By the time this war breaks out, 
Corbett has got uh, has been studying naval history at least that long as well. Both of them have become involved in professional military education, working with the officers of their respective countries. And, uh, and needless to say, naval officers, and this is something that Corbett is, is, uh, realizes firsthand because he's very close to it. He's, he's, he's lecturing and teaching naval officers at the time are completely infatuated by this war when it, it comes out because the Japanese Navy is primarily British built ships that are uh, the, as I believe it came out in the lecture yesterday, that the Japanese Navy is based on the British model. So the British see a little bit of something kindred in there and they're seeing the newest technology playing out in real time in front of them. And Corbett is deathly concerned and so is Mahan that one example doesn't make a trend. And what I mean by this is both of them are really, really concerned that people are trying to take too many lessons from the rest of Japanese war. In fact, they're going to apply the same thing to the recent Spanish-American war as well, that these are both limited regional conflicts. These are not global maritime struggles. And, uh, and both of them are, are really, really concerned that people will be taking, particularly naval leaders and politicians will be taking basically as gospel what is happening in the Russo-Japanese war and trying to apply it perhaps to very different countries, to very different situations, very different strategic environments. And both of them point to the importance of, yes, the Russo-Japanese war is extremely important because we can see how technology plays out. We can see modern conditions, but you cannot forget previous wars that have taken place because that's gonna give a broader perspective and, uh, and not trap individuals within the environment of their own time. Uh, so that's one thing that, that really, really plays out to that. Even so, both of them write a tremendous amount on the Russo-Japanese War, particularly Mahan commentates on it at the time. He includes many examples of it in his later book on naval strategy. That Corbett will write a massive two-volume uh, staff study of the war that the Royal Navy is hoping to use. Uh, they don't because World War I gets in the way. But, uh, but so they're very interested in it, but they're also very leery of it at the same time. Thank you. Great question. Jim, why don't we uh, go to you since you're also a Mahan and Corbett enthusiast here. Yeah, I was, I was actually going to make a slightly different uh, point. Uh, a couple of years ago, in fact, Kevin was involved in this project as well. We did a, we did a, a volume, an edited volume on Theodore Roosevelt's handling of sea power. It actually ended up being an excellent volume. But the uh, my entry in, the, in it, I actually, I actually took, I looked at the Battle of Tsushima, in particular, the cultural significance that it took on within the Imperial Japanese Navy and the Japanese government. They, they, I think one thing you see in, in the ILC in particular is that sometimes a really dramatic event, especially a victory happens and it works its way into the into the assumptions of the of the of the victor of, of a big bureaucratic institution which becomes convinced that it is going to replicate those in different in different circumstances this is this sort of follows on what kevin was just talking about the japanese of the japanese navy the japanese navy thought that the united states soon after this war they decided that the, the u.s navy was the next big thing the next the next enemy and they had and they said they started planning on the assumption that the that we would do what the russians had done during the russo-japanese war 
steam, steam th send the fleet thousands of miles, it, it, it arrives in the theater debilitated and unable to fight. And at, at that point, we will crush them. This becomes the, the, the basis the basis of the of the assumptions for all Japanese war planning leading into into World War II. So I'd say that's that's something to guard against. When, when some dramatic event happens, we need, we really need to guard against this tendency to try to to try to apply a sort of mass production mentality because the adversary has an, every incentive not to do that. In fact, and I'm gonna, this is the last time I'm going to mention TR because this is becoming too TR centric. He's only a bit player in this case, but he, it, it is important that when he sends the the Great White Fleet, the American Battle Fleet, around the world in 1907 through 1909, he does it. He says it in his memoir. He does it in great part to deter Japan, to to announce to Japan and to the world that the U.S. Navy will can arrive at a distant theater in good fighting trim and actually win. We are not going to be. We are not going to be the. We're not going to be the, the the Russian leadership. However, it's it's also unclear that the Japanese were deterred by that, because those those were pre-dreadnought battleships. They were the, and it, so it's so again, it's it's a little bit ambiguous. Tr Tr takes a victory lap because he wants to, and it's it's his baby. But but at the same time, it's, it's really hard to dislodge that sort of assumptions uh, from a big institution once it becomes enamored of them. Mm. Yeah, interesting. The point about lessons learned too, because I guess you could you could say if you expand the timeline a little bit. The Japanese were looking at what they did to the Chinese fleet in the first Sino-Japanese yep. War, and then they replicated it with the Russians. And then, well, wait, why can't we replicate it again <laughs> against the Americans? But yeah, you know, one of the other one of the other cases that really that really leaps out it, it always leaps out at me is I mean, think about the Bunker Hill mentality in the, in the Continental Army during the War of American Independence. Okay, this it worked really well. We we inflicted lots of casualties on the British, and they will keep charging fixed fortifications until they bleed themselves dry. Well, I mean the how the how brothers Cornwallis. I mean these guys are not they're not idiots. They're they're military they're they're military uh, uh, savants almost, and they don't they didn't keep doing what didn't work very well. And that's I mean that's part of the interaction process. Dave, want to go to you for uh, talking about lessons. yeah. Let me pick up because uh, Jim mentioned land warfare uh, and uh, in the context of the American Revolution, and I think the land warfare illustrates as well this idea that we've been talking about that you want to be very careful about taking a single example and making it into a trend. And you want to be very careful about assuming that just because somebody won that they did everything right. Um, and the, the specific land warfare thing I want to mention is what we see going into World War I. There are plenty of examples uh, in the 50 years before World War I that land warfare has become increasingly lethal. The US Civil War, uh, the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-78, and then the Russo-Japanese War. Um, and so this is a combination of breech loading rifles and quick firing artillery and machine guns. So land warfare has become lethal. And the question is what to do about that. Um, and I think what European armies tend to do is they, they look for examples and find them where frontal assaults on fortifications worked. There aren't a lot of them, but they happen. In the, Rus the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-78, there are examples that you can point to. Uh, and it, particularly in the Russo-Japanese War, um, one of the things that armies tend to say is, well, we still need to be on the offensive. And Japan shows that if you have a lawn, if you have morale, if you have motivated soldiers, then these new constraints on land warfare will not necessarily block you from doing the things you want to do. Uh, and obviously that has, has terrible repercussions in World War I. Uh, and so, again, it, it's this greater principle that you need to think through the lessons and not just assume blindly that um, the, the lessons are going to be obvious. So that's it. So it brings up an interesting point because we have almost two different opinions about, you know, when to use the when to take the naval lessons learned, when to take the land lessons learned. Um, is it fair to say that perhaps 
unless you understand the context, unless you understand the, the value of the object, unless you understand the rational calculus and, and the aims and the strategy and all the stuff we talked about in this course, that that's the danger of kind of just grabbing like, oh, this is what happened at Tsushima. So we can replicate that again. And Kevin, we'll, we'll go to you for that one. Uh, thank you. Um, it is a danger. Uh, every example is unique. The next war is going to be different than any other war that has ever happened before. Uh, each one of the cases we look at in the strategy and war course has unique elements, but there's also overlap between all of them. And that's, that becomes, uh, you know, that becomes the, that becomes the danger. Do you always look for the overlap? Do you always try and fight the last war? Do you try and understand what is unique about this war? It starts and the sides that do best are the ones that don't try and fight the last war all the time. The ones that look at their opponents in, in, careful ways. Look at the Japanese in this war and how much they studied the Russians before the war actually started. Um, look at how the Russians uh, advanced racist uh, stereotypes on the Japanese and largely discounted them when the war uh, began. One side came into it intellectually prepared. They understood the political object that they were really after. They tried to match the strategy to that political object. They understood the limitations of their own side. They understood their ability not to be able to replace warships, how they could risk warships, or what they wanted to obtain on land. They tried to build an army that would potentially obtain this. Um, they, uh, they tried to figure out interaction with the opponent, although as uh, the great German General Mulkey said, no plan survives first contact with the opponent interaction will will go in unexpected ways as it did for the Japanese when they lose a third of their battleships in one afternoon at off the, the coast at Port Arthur. Uh, I guarantee you they did not expect to sustain the sheer number of losses they did at Port Arthur uh, to take it. Uh, but uh, yes, this, this thinking about it and being prepared and looking at it in a rational calculated way is extraordinarily important. Mm -hmm. Dave, what's your what's your sense on that one? Oh, you're on uh, you're on mute, Dave. Sorry about that. The, uh, there, I, I'm trying to come up with a Clausewitz quote because there's always a relevant Clausewitz quote, and sometimes I just can't produce it on the spot. But I, he has this line about how um, every war is unique, every war is particular. Um, but at the same time, he talks about how they're enduring lessons, and so I think it it gets in, into the distinction between what you might call and, and oftentimes the phrase we use. Um, the nature of war as a general phenomenon and the nature of a war or the character of a particular war. Uh, and this is always, a this is why it's not easy. This is why you have to think hard about it is because sometimes there are things that are particular and unique. Sometimes there are things that are enduring and there's no labels that explain which is which. You have to actually do the hard work of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Jim, any, uh, any thoughts on that one? Yeah. I uh, not in particular, except other than just to sort of kick the kick the desk on what Dave just said. That it's it's amazing it's it's amazing how how much difference that that uh, definite article makes nature of war as a, as a phenomenon versus the nature of the war, and that's a, and, and, and that's something we run into all the time. It's so it's it, really putting that in there is is very very important. So, but yeah, it's a, and again just to restate. In fact, in fact, when I was writing about the the, the lingering effects of Tsushima, I called it. I, I, I compared it to a strategic meme, 
you think about what a meme is, I mean, we think about it being something you see online, it's a joke or whatnot, or it makes some, makes fun of somebody you don't like. But I mean, the, the, the notion of a meme comes from Richard Dawkins back in the, in the 1970s. He a scientist who came up with a book called The Selfish Gene. He posited, he posited that there's a, there's a competition to see which ideas will survive. It's sort of a, sort of a, a survival of the, of the fittest mentality. And if an idea, if an, if an idea is seen as the, is seen as the fittest by a critical mass of people, it, it, it sort of it sort of latch it, they sort of latch onto it. It becomes it becomes a viral idea. He he also came up with the idea of, of an idea going viral. So if, if you th if you think about an idea, a big idea, we can do Tsushima over and over again. And if that becomes a viral idea, and if it infects the senior leadership of a big institution like the Japanese Navy, what's the leadership going to tend to do? Write that, write that big idea into procedures, into tactics, into doctrine, into into everything in the world, and, that, and thus and thus sort of wrong foot that institution potentially as the world changes around it, as it will. So, so again, this is managing bureaucracy, trying trying to trying to trying to limit the impact of of, of viral ideas on a, on a, on a on a big bureaucracy. I think that's a key a key aspect of of leadership. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what the solution is, but if we realize we have a problem, I think that's probably the first step. Maybe it's part of the what we're talking about here in terms of learning the wrong lessons from a war. Um, Russia is an autocratic regime. Uh, you know, the Navy is a symbol. Losing that symbol at Tsushima, as Sansa says, is attacking the mind of the enemy commander. Right? That's the, the, you know, essentially convinces uh, Nicholas to it's like, okay, we're done here. But as you mentioned in your lecture, Dave, they don't have to be done after the loss of the fleet. But it is the thing that just stops the the mindset um so yeah i guess you would say the japanese learned the wrong lessons from this and you're it, an autocratic regime in russia versus a, demo, a representative democracy in america so you know sinking the american fleet at pearl harbor is not the same thing as sinking the russian fleet at tsushima is that is that a fair statement jim what do you what do you think uh yeah i mean it is i mean it's, 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 it's there's an interesting in fact i would sort of flip around flip around uh, what i just said about victory fever in japan the tsushima the tsushima effect or whatever you want to call it a, a, a massive defeat is often is often what it takes to, to break a culture and and to, to really discredit uh, bad old ideas that have gathered up during the during the pre-war era just a just a small teaser for for world war ii in the pacific which will be coming up in a couple of in a, in a couple of weeks so i guess three weeks down the road but the uh, the United States Navy, especially in submarine warfare, during the interwar years after World War One, so so after after next week's case, got got into really bad habits. Basically, assuming basically assuming that it was all it was all about attacking an enemy's battle fleet. Okay, that's sort of one of the lessons that will come out of World War One is that we don't attack, we don't conduct un, unrestricted submarine warfare against uh, civilian shipping, and this becomes encoded in the submarine doctrine. But but yet, after Pearl Harbor, in fact, they infected the order goes out while the while the fleet is burning at Pearl Harbor on December seventh. Sink everything flying a Japanese flag, including including uh, including uh, tankers and uh, transport ships and all, and all that sort of thing. It becomes really it becomes really hard for strangely if you're attacking. You would think if you're attacking an un an unarmed ship, that would be a, sort of an easy thing to do rather than attacking a, a battleship or a carrier. But nonetheless, there, there's a lot of bad habits that have to be unlearned, unlearned among U.S. Uh, submarine skippers, and I, and I think Pearl Harbor applies that stimulus to try to, to try to come to terms with with reality as it is. Subpac, the, the submarine Pacific commander, actually 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 established a policy. And they said a skipper who doesn't show results after two patrols is fired. You're toast. 
and they, there was about there was about a thirty percent uh, turnover in the fleet uh, in the in the first two three years of the war, simply because many people could not unlearn their old assumptions that they had been indoctrinated in, in the 1920s and the 1930s. Bring in fresh blood from outside, bring in young people who are not so uh, marinated in these assumptions, and you, you can start getting things right. And the campaign ended up uh, being uh, being very successful, uh, statistically, in breaking up the Japanese empire. Interesting. Dave, we'll go to you. Yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm going to steal uh, a Wiley point. Jim is the Wiley professor, but I'm going to use a Wiley concept. Um, and this is not Wiley as in tricky. This is Wiley as in Admiral Wiley. Um, he makes this really interesting and I think very useful distinction between cumulative and sequential approaches to strategy. Um, and I think it helps to illustrate the difference between Tsushima and Pearl Harbor. Um, from the Russian point of view, um, the Russo-Japanese War has been a long series of things that have not gone well. And after a while, that's just you, you get accustomed to, to bad news and bad things happening. And that's cumulative. But it's some, sometimes a big sequential event. Something smacks you upside the head and says, no, wait a minute. Should, I, I should really rethink this in a way that sort of daily bad news doesn't. And so I think Tsushima comes at a time when the Russians have had a lot of bad news and it changes Nicholas's mind. Pearl Harbor is different. It, it, the, the bad news comes all at the beginning. The American people aren't tired of war in December 1941. Um, and so it's galvanizing rather than demoralizing. You know, if there had been a similar disaster that had come later in the war, then you might think about um, sort of different outcomes. Just to, as an example, um, U.S. Army Chief Staff Marshall during World War II talked about how he thought the American people had about four years in them to fight a big war, and then they'd get tired. And you could imagine what happens if the worst takes place in June 1944 and D-Day fails. Um, that's a huge strategic blow. That's a lot of men and material that are no longer available. But it's also after, you know, two and a half, three years of war, um, would the American public think differently about the war? I mean, it didn't happen that way. We don't know. But it's at least worth pondering the possibility uh, to think about what bad news does at particular points in time and particular times in the war. Yeah, I guess I guess the difference uh, between uh, with, with Pearl Harbor is simply that uh, Yes, I know the battleship fleet was a, sort of the pride of the U.S. Navy, but that, but those ended up being sort of secondary assets uh, as, as the war unfolded. So they were there. So that's a, that's a major, most sort of emotional, an emotional blow. And obviously, seeing uh, American soldiers and sailors uh, killed in large numbers is, is a very uh, traumatic thing for the United States. But at the same time, you can re, you can replace those with something better. And this, and when we think about, it, I'm glad that risk has come up uh, several times already, just because it's it, it should always be with us. On the eve of the battle of the Battle of Midway, uh, Admiral Nemitz, commanding commanding the U.S. Uh, Pacific Fleet, sends out instructions to uh, the commanders of the task forces that will take part in that engagement: Admiral uh, Frank Jack Fletcher and Admiral Spruance, who, of course, was our president here after the war. But uh, but he he say he he instructs them to engage the he's he's not a control freak, which is one thing I love about Nemitz. He instructs them to to make their own determination whether to engage the Japanese fleet based on the principle of what he calls the principle of calculated risk. By which he said, by which he means, in effect, do worse to the, engage if you think you can do worse to the enemy than the enemy can do to you, and that's a, and that's but and, and he's able to do that. He's able to be rather rather uh, sort of hands off and risk acceptance simply because he knows he has that said so that, that that second navy building back home. We, we've been building up since 1940. He knows he's going to get a new navy in 1943 and into 1944. Why not? Why not gamble with what you got? So he so he so he grants those guys a, a, a relatively free reign, and this is a, this is a big uh, characterizing his uh, handling of operations throughout the war. He's very very cautious. He's very cautious into 1943, 
when I guess the, the marker for it is uh, when USSX, USSX Essex, the first of the famous Essex class carriers, shows up in Pearl Harbor. I think it was May of that year. And at that point, new shipping's just started flowing into the theater, and he could accept a lot more risk as the as the as the balance between the United States and Japan uh, continued continued to shift in the Americans' favor. Interesting. I wonder if that brings up a point about you know the our cultures and society core theme. Is there a, a greater cultural tolerance of risk? And in a in a representative democracy like America, you can maybe make those those mission type orders as opposed to the way it was in the Japanese Navy or the Russian Navy back in, in the Russo-Japanese War. Um, I don't know, Kevin, any, any, any thoughts on that one? I'm going to speak to Japan here um, uh, right now. Togo is given a relatively long leash in the Russo-Japanese War to make sure there's a series of things that he has to do, but everything that he has to do points back to keep the sea lines of communication open between the Japanese home islands and Japanese forces in Korea marching into Manchuria. Uh, how is he supposed to do this? What type of risk is he allowed to take? He realizes that at least early on in the war, the primary opponent that can put those sea lines of communication in jeopardy is the Russian fleet at Port Arthur. So he figures out a way to mask that fleet. They start out with a surprise attack, which is not pressed home as hard as you would think it probably would or should be in the course of such a war, largely because the Japanese do not want to risk their ships and they are unsure how prepared the Russians are going to be here in this one. And then, well, they, they don't get a knockout blow, which forces the Japanese army, oh, I'm sorry, the Japanese Navy at this point in time, to, to figure out how to blockade Port Arthur, but this proves to be difficult. There's longer range artillery, there are minefields. Uh, how do you do this also with steam powered versus sail power that uh, with new technologies, torpedoes and a number of factors. Uh, Togo has to play a very, very careful and skilled game off Port Arthur for a number of months. Uh, loses a third of his battleships in one afternoon, which I mentioned earlier, which just shows you how, um, you know, particularly with these first-rate uh, naval assets, these battleships, uh, they can be lost so quickly. And uh, and and the uh, and how do you calculate that? And particularly, Togo can't have another day like that. And how do the Japanese respond to that? Well, the Japanese respond to that by deciding not to risk the fleet, but to risk soldiers. Soldiers become far more expendable in this war than the actual uh, Japanese fleet. Losing thousands of soldiers is much preferable to losing another battleship. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not particularly pleasant if you're telling the soldiers this. In some respects, given the nature of Japanese society, uh, they're able to transfer this onto the soldiers, use um, codes and, and morals and, uh, and, 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 and views of, of courage and sacrifice to play this out. And the soldiers are largely the ones that take Port Arthur because of it. Again, uh, but this is, for Japan, this is how they modify their risk calculus here moving forward and, and play it out. Uh, Togo, yeah, as, as the commander-in-chief of the fleet, is intimately aware of all of this stuff and, and the interactions here. And again, he's given a large, uh, a large bit of rope to work with, but uh, it's, um, he... Uh, he is also very 
finally attune with a political leadership here, um, which uh, which plays also, from my understanding, much like Nimitz is in World War II, and and understanding uh, the relationship between political objects, risk, what he has, and other sorts of things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, talking about a, a bastardization of the Bushido code, right, for the for the Japanese side. Um, Dave, want to answer that uh, from the uh, cultural question from the and risk calculus from the Russian perspective? So I, I think the Russians are in a slightly different position because it starts off with the stakes being so much different. Uh, from the Japanese point of view, this is really existential. And from the Russians, for the Russians, it's just not. It's a really big empire with lots of problems. This is one problem among many. Uh, and so that changes the risk calculation. It's not as vital to run risks. Now, certainly Russia puts lots of resources into this war um, and it becomes more or less a matter of prestige. I think there's a, a prestige and honor factor here that it, it's hard to imagine that Port Arthur in itself justifies the sacrifices that Russia makes in this war. Um, but when prestige and honor is at stake and the security of Nicholas II himself, um, his great-great-grandfather was assassinated for failures in foreign policy. And so these things do happen to Russian rulers, and he has to be conscious of that. Um, but I think one of the reasons that the Russians are a little more cautious is simply they can be. It's not as important to them um, as it is for the Japanese. And again, even mindful of all the resources the Russians put in this war, um, everything they end up adding bit by bit by bit, um, it's just not the same for them. Hmm. So... I want to kind of shift the discussion to the contemporary realm here and um, some some interesting parallels we've seen in Ukraine. You know, the Russians lose. They don't lose the fleet, but they've lost the major capital ship, the Muscova. Um, and, you know, do you think, Dave, that uh, Russia has learned anything from the Russo-Japanese war that they're applying over there? Or do you think they're making some of the same same mistakes? Um, so I, I think certainly there are um, lessons drawn from the Russo-Japanese War generally. I think um, whoever is running things in Moscow or St. Petersburg is always conscious of the fact that the Far East is far away and empty, uh, and that's a big problem. The Russians are always conscious of that. Uh, and so that's a lesson that, that has lasted for a century. Um, I don't actually see a lot of parallels with Ukraine today. And I should say, now that we're getting close to contemporary subjects, uh, for me as for everyone, this is all just our personal opinion. This is um, nothing official when we talk about things that are going on right now. Um, so I, I think it's there. So for one, it's the Russians on the offensive rather than on the defensive. Uh, the Russians start the war, the war's not started against them. Um, the Russians see the stakes as high um, there are times at which Putin and the people around him talk of the war in existential terms, but it's hard to see this as existential in quite the same way that the Japanese saw things in 1904 and 1905. Um, and the other thing I would say, too, in terms of prestige value, certainly the, the loss of the Moskva is a big deal to the Russians. Putin is one of those Russian rulers that puts a big emphasis on the Navy. Uh, one of the things we said at the beginning was that in many ways for Russia, it's a continental power with continental problems and the fleet is not as important. But there are individual Russian rulers that decide that the fleet is really important. Nicholas II was one of them, Vladimir Putin is another. And so it is a big humiliation to lose the Moskva. Um, and they also lost a really big and important landing ships um, at the dock in Crimea. Um, so this is also a, a big deal. Um, but one of the things I think that's a little different here is that uh, Putin is an autocrat in, in some similar ways to the way Nicholas II was. Obviously, there are differences in the political systems. Um, but Nicholas II had functioning opposition parties 
in many cases illegal, but still functioning and organized. There was organized opposition to the regime that exploded in 1905. Lots of 1905 was spontaneous, but there were groups and organizations in Russia that could articulate some vision of opposition. And Putin has done a fairly good job of crushing opposition movements inside Russia. And so the sort of prestige loss of the Moskva and the fact that the war in Ukraine is not going badly is at least at the moment not threatening to him in the way that it might have been to Nicholas II. Again, um, we're still early. We're six months into, into the war um, in Ukraine. And so things could certainly change. But uh, there are a lot of structural differences that I think make the parallel between 1904, 1905 and what we're seeing now not quite so close. So uh, there was a lot of disjointed thoughts. I hope there was something, one or two things in there that are, are useful. Oh, it's good stuff. Jim, how about you? Uh, what do you what do you think this this contemporary problem set um, has bearing? Does and being a China expert, does what do the Chinese look upon this conflict in Russia, and what do they learn? Well, <clears throat> and I uh, just sort of putting myself into Xi Jinping and his and his advisors' minds. I I, I, I have to I have to wonder whether they're looking at their Russian ally and uh, having second thoughts about this no limits uh, alliance that was uh, that was announced back in February just on the uh, just on the eve of the of the invasion, because I, I think Russia because I, Russia has that. I mean, think about think about it from an alliance building standpoint. Do you really want to pool your Do you really want to pool your fortunes with a, an, a, a basically an unreliable or an incompetent ally? It does. So I, you have to wonder whether Xi Jinping is not having second thoughts about that. As far as as far as China learning lessons from history, China China. One thing to know about about the Chinese is that there's a lot of them. They are very attentive to history and they are determined always to learn from history. That makes them that makes them a very a very formidable adversary in my view. Uh, some years ago, in fact, it was probably about 15 years ago at this point. Uh, the the Chinese the Chinese uh, central TV TV station commissioned a series a series of movies and a series of books called the rise of great powers, in in, in which they in which they studied great ca cases of rising powers throughout history. <clears throat> Excuse me, and they set out they set out explicitly to learn the lessons of those so uh, so that China could not re replicate it could emulate the successes without the defeats. And so, so the, the Russo-Japanese War figures into that. Obviously, it happens in China's in China's neighborhood. China Chinese soil is part 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 of the theater of operations. So they so they study this. They study they study the Falklands War, another anti-access war. I mean, they they study everything. Interestingly, the uh, one one of the ones that really always stood out to me was their study of Germany. Of course, Germany. Of course, Germany is going to become a major player in the in the in the uh, course next week. They study. They study Bismarck's Germany. Just a very a capsule on how Bismarck handled statecraft after unifying Germany in a series of, of limited wars. He more or less he went out of his way to let Europeans know Germany is a satisfied power now. We are not going to come after more territory. We're satisfied. We're done here. This uh, <clears throat> this helped. Uh, this helped Bismarck, Bismarck's Germany keep the peace for a while. Ultimately, he's fired. The Kaiser Wilhelm takes over. He's he's much more erratic. Uh, and, and so forth, and that makes it really hard for Europeans to 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 actually plan against his against his intentions. Bismarck Bismarck tele, telegraph telegraphed benign intentions. The Kaiser, you didn't know what you were going to get. So, <clears throat> what's the takeaway for, for contemporary China from studying this? We're like Bismarck's Germany. We're, we're we are a satisfied rising power, and we're not that we're not like the Kaiser Germany that's going to march a continent over the precipice into war. I think I, I think this uh, narrative is not uh, holding up uh, as well as it did as well as it did about a decade ago when that uh, movie and book series was commissioned because China is acting it is acting to me 
more like uh, more like the Kaiser these days, abusing its neighbors and uh, challenging the system and so forth. But again, these are again these the, the, the Chinese study history. They try to learn for it, and this is something we got to be aware of because sometimes they study our history and they know it better than we do. They don't. I don't think they interpret it correct correctly. But but you know what? When when you're interacting with Chinese and they say something about the Monroe Doctrine and how uh, all China wants is a, a Monroe Doctrine in the South China Sea. If we don't know what the Monroe Doctrine is in, in U.S. history, can you really respond to it? And that's a, that, that, so that's a, that really translates into uh, uh, sort of easy gotcha points uh, for, for our Chinese friends when they interact with us. Because we don't when we say that's history, what do we mean? Over irrelevant. We're, we're moving forward. And that's so I, I think I've I think I've heard you uh, you say this before, like uh, just like the uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, the same thing as Xi. They've they've read Mahan. But do they actually understand Mahan? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, if you look at China by uh, through the lens of China's uh, or of China's of uh, Mahan's uh, six determinants, look at the geographic factor. I mean, he, Mahan's writing for the United States, which doesn't ha doesn't have any uh, geographic obstacles to its to its access to the Atlantic, the Pacific, and the and the Caribbean Sea. China has a China has a, China has obstacles strewn all the way all the way around its coastline. First island chain, chain completely encloses China's coastline, and that translates into a radically different uh, environment for sea power. Maybe they get it done, but they but they do have to figure out how to break out of that confinement. Right, Kevin, let's go to you. Um, two points here: one, to look generally at the relevance between the war in Ukraine and the rest of the Japanese war, and one point to look particularly at the naval element. In terms of the general point, one thing that strikes me is the Russians in both do very, very poor assessments going into the wars. They do not understand the nature of their opponent as nearly as well. And it's particularly striking with the Ukraine war. You would think next door neighbors, once part of the Soviet Union, you would think they would get it right. Maybe it's more excusable on the, on the out into the far Eastern realms or on an island that is off the coast that had been closed to foreigners up until 40 years ago. But in both cases, the Soviets underestimate their opponents uh, in, in both wars. Oh, I'm sorry, the Russians do um, in, in both wars. And I think it's something that is a is something to look at critically here and something for us to realize just how easy this is to do for states and what type of major repercussions this has in the long term. Turning to the naval element, we look at the Moscova and we see, and I see parallels between the loss of Japanese battleships on the same day off of Port Arthur, which I've mentioned now three times. Uh, two Japanese battleships go down off Port Arthur because they hit a very cheap, relatively new naval technology. Granted, mines have been around for a while, but the nature of the types of mines were very much products of the recent, uh, recent past um, and how deadly these are to extremely expensive warships. And what we see here is this is startling to naval figures around the world at the time. They realized particularly the problems of close blockade working in the littorals and, and, and risk factors that play on here. Uh, to me, looking at the loss of Moscova, it's lost to relatively inexpensive a surface uh, uh, 
surface uh, naval missile systems in, in this point and launched from the land in this. And one of the things you have to think about is how these relatively expensive, but inexpensive, but relatively new technologies or advancing technologies play into the ability, particularly of warships to operate close to shores and how this really plays out with the risk element. Thank you. Dave, we'll go to you. Yeah, just to, to amplify Kevin's point here, I know of the people in the room, Jim is the real expert on contemporary naval warfare, but I would just want to make a, a couple things to the earlier discussion we were having about drawing lessons and making sure that you're thinking through the lessons you're drawing. Um, and there's a lot that we still just don't know. Some of it's behind walls of classification, some of it's behind walls of ignorance. Um, but for example, um, do we read from this that modern na naval ships are really vulnerable to um, anti-ship missiles? Um, or is it that it's a really old Russian platform? I think the Moskva was commissioned in 85. I, I may be wrong about that, but I think it was 85. Uh, were the Russians sloppy? Were the Ukrainians good? Um, what, if any, help did the Ukrainians have? There's all these things that will affect the bigger conclusions we draw from this particular incident. And so I think it underlines the importance of thinking through very carefully what it is that we learn when we look at, at what's going on in the world. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so as we move to the, to the end here, I wanted to take a, an opportunity to get some, some closing thoughts or some key takeaways from the Russo-Japanese War. You know, if you've had one, uh, one big idea you wanted to pull out of this, wanted everyone to know, what would it be? And uh, Kevin, we'll go ahead and, uh, and start with you. I was afraid you were going to ask me this one. <laughs> I was hoping that I was going to be able to play off of Jim and, and, and Dave's comment. Um, to me, I want to go full circle back to the thing I said in the first place today. The key takeaway is this is such an archetype for a limited regional war. It is such and has so many elements to it that I think a particularly a student of strategy or somebody who's just starting to look at the strategic level cannot go too far wrong with understanding what the differences are between a limited war like this and how they can uh, contrast it with other wars of a more unlimited nature, uh, such as the world wars and, uh, and understanding how the naval element plays out, looking at how war termination plays out in a limited war. The, the Treaty of Portsmouth plays, plays very well and it's very contained. And it's one of these wars that can be studied and, and studied almost in a microchasm. And I think that's the, the big takeaway that we can, we can draw from this conflict. Awesome. Thank you, Kevin. Dave. So I would go with the, the big lesson that I would take away is that wars are a lot easier to start than they are to finish in the way you want them to finish. Uh, and there's lots of good theoretical reasons for this. You can point to Clausewitzian fog and friction, uh, the interaction between adversaries that rarely cooperate with you. Um, there's the old Moltke line about no plan surviving contact with the enemy. And so I, I think our, our military and political leaders, and, and certainly uh, Vladimir Putin would have done much better to recognize that wars are easier to start than they are to win. Hmm. Great point. Jim, we'll end with you. I'd say be humble. When, you, when you're sizing up your own capabilities and your, and your own ability to wage war and, and that of your adversary, never made, never tend to denigrate your adversary. Assume that, I mean, and this is just a recurring theme in the course. For example, for example, we'll see going into the Vietnam case uh, uh, about weeks down the road that uh, 
in the in the critical 1964 and 65 time frames or time frame the 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 US army and the US military are basically assuming that for, for example one one american battalion is worth three three uh, three uh, viet cong or north vietnamese battalion i mean that's a, i mean that's something that's i mean that's something that's just if you build that into gaming you, you you're going to potentially draw some very false results so be humble about yourself and also and, and also and also be be humble about your ability to impose your will on on the adversary because your your adversary is somebody somebody who has as much desire to win has as many brain cells as you do and in, the, in this case, in the Russo-Japanese War, if I'm Russia, I'm fighting. I'm fighting on the on the enemy's home ground that the enemy knows very well, knows the cultural surroundings, knows that knows the knows the physical terrain and so forth. So always, so always afford your adversary uh, uh, the 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 respect that he's due. Don't don't let cultural lenses and things like that uh, get in the way. And I think you know, you're not going to guarantee your success by being humble about your prospects and those of your adversary. But uh, but I think you improve your chances. Outstanding. All right, that brings us to the conclusion of our uh, our talk today. Jim, Dave, Kevin, thank you very much for your time. This was a lot of fun, and we'll see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thanks, John.